Testing, testing, one, two, one, two. One, two, one, two. Ali, Ali. We are back. We are back. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, wherever you are. My name is Corey Walton Malcolm, aka The Beefy, and you have tuned in to the next episode of the amazing podcast, The Tub Hub. Now, if this is the first time that you have tuned into this podcast, this podcast explores the word help in all its forms. I discuss with my guests, do they ask for help? When do they ask for help? How does helping make them feel? Now, I've talked too much. I'm going to introduce our next guest, a dear friend of mine, Ayo. Are you there, sir? I am here in a bath. Um, feeling rather awkward and slightly exposed. Uh, first time I've ever spoken to someone on a phone or on the other line uh, in a bath. But yeah, I'm good to go, bro. <laughs> um, so, Aya, I obviously know who you are. Um, but if you could tell um, our awesome guests who you are and how we know each other, please. Yeah, so my name's um, Ayo Akimuleri. I'm a broadcaster. Um, started years ago as the first ever black male presenter to host Blue Peter. Um, I've gone on to do lots of bits and pieces, bit of a polymath really, uh, from music stuff to now sports, to current affairs, to documentaries. I've been very lucky to be in this industry for a good like 13, 14 years. I'm also hugely into my sport, um, uh, keeping fit. And that's where I met you through the wonderful Run Dem crew. Um, I was actually, I don't know if you ever know this, but actually I was in quite a, a strange point in my life and strange point in my career uh, where there wasn't much work coming through and actually something like Run Dem and being part of Run Dem and meeting so many incredible people really saved me at a period in time. So yeah, that's how our relationship blossomed really. I always oh, knew wow. that there was something there in you. Uh, this guy was just full of energy. Your <laughs> <laughs> energy. And um, yeah, like we've sort of been fleeting in and out of each other's lives since then really. And then I got you involved in a little project I created a few years ago called the Swim Challenge, where we actually taught you to swim. Um, yes. And it was wonderful to see you swimming across the Thames. Like that <laughs> is an incredible feat. You swimming across the Thames, considering I remember, I don't know if you remember, but- we'll Of course I remember. You were like, bro, I don't think I could do this. And you actually did it half a mile in open water, bro. I will never forget it. It was superb. I remember um, the first couple of weeks of like coming out of the swimming pool and into open water and just having flashbacks of <laughs> like not having fun times <laughs> when I was growing up drowning <laughs> and like flapping about in water. Um, and then on the day when I did the triathlon, I remember it was so hard. Mm. So where we trained um, in that reservoir, yeah, there was a current, but the current wasn't that strong. Mm. Um, so when you like started to feel a little bit tired, you could lie on your back, have a, have a little bit of a rest. But when we were in the Thames, I remember every single time I got tired and I wanted to have a break, I'd lie on my back and I'd float backwards because <laughs> the current would just sweep you back. Yeah, so yeah. I remember I was in the water for so long and I think it was like one or two waves like of the fast people from the next wave passed me and then I got out. But it was amazing because everyone was there and yeah, it was cool. 
Yeah, I don't know if um, so I, I guess we should sort of give some co- sort of context to your your little your swimming journey, really. Um, so <laughs> it was quite a few years ago now, but um, I very lucky to have the world record for swimming across the deepest stretch of ocean in the world, which I thought was a mad thing. <laughs> you to just do. wanted to drop that in. So you have to applaud yourself, you know. You have to tap yourself on the shoulder and say, "Well done, boy." Um, oh. and, I'll be honest with you, that's, that's another story in terms of giving yourself credit for things that you've done and feeling worthy of certain things, but I'm sure we'll touch on that at some point through this little chat. But yeah, it was like, I thought, I learned to swim in 10 weeks and luckily I did it on Blue Peter and I thought to myself, imagine if I could do the same with other people. I, I didn't really have much of a concept but um, in terms of how I was going to do it, but I realised that by putting it out there and weirdly, and I know the, the idea of this programme is asking for help, that actually a lot of people came to the aid and I was lucky to have a good network through Run Dem and obviously Charlie Dark helped us out and the boys at Swim Dem and we just opened it up to people who had either learnt to swim and had fallen out of love with it for various reasons or hadn't learnt to swim whatsoever and the idea was to try and get people to feel comfortable in the water in, in 10 weeks and also if they could learn to swim which is the main objective but then go out and do it in open water as well and I think it was about 10 to 15 people and bar yeah. maybe two or three people pretty much every single person in 10 weeks learned to swim and then um, quite a huge chunk of people as well went out to do open water swimming um, in the great uh, in the great Salford swim and then the swim uh, the great London swim in St Catherine stuff which for me was just extraordinary seeing lots of brown people in the water, looking comfortable and actually enjoying swimming, not looking like they were going to choke or looking like they were going to pass out and stuff. And it was it's something that still stays with me till today, watching you guys go from zero to actually swimming in open water and feeling comfortable in there was absolutely beautiful. And what was even more amazing as an addition to that story is the fact that some of the people who didn't know how to swim before, after they completed the open water challenge, they then went on to take qualifications to become swimming instructors and then work in leisure centers as teachers and then set up their own swimming clubs and teach people to swim. Exactly. I think what's always been interesting and subconsciously we've probably had this sort of thing at the back of our minds, you and I, and whenever we're doing stuff is how to bring change in ways that we've never seen it done before. And I definitely think there's something about the swimming world is, I mean, I'll be honest, it's predominantly white and middle class, isn't it? Like, and yeah. trying to change that rhetoric is it, it, quite hard. Um, uh, and that's what I wanted to do because, you know, there were so many stereotypes of black people not swimming, people of colour not swimming. Actually, the stats were at the time, I think, this is about three or four years ago, that if you were an ethnic minority, you were three times less likely to swim than your white counterparts. And I thought to myself, all those myths about bone density, sinking, <laughs> look, it's about technique and overcoming fear. That's fundamentally it. Once you've got the technique and if you've overcome the fear of that, you know, that weird abyss that might suck you in or jaws come to chomp your legs off in the water, once you get past those mental blocks, yeah. Actually, it's about technique. And for me, it's about equipping people with the ability to stay safe in the water. But also, when you're chill, it's actually nice and fun, isn't it? Like, it's actually beautiful. And I think if we can look at ways to bring change into major institutions um, that have been doing things the same way for so long, and actually bringing people like ourselves in a way that they recognise and understand it, being told to them. I think you're always hitting gold. And for me, it's about asking for help firstly, but also about having partnerships that believe in what you're doing as well. I think that's been really important. And I think that was what was 
part of the success of the swim challenge. Look, some of it, I didn't even know how it was going to end up. I didn't even know whether we were going to finish it or how it was going to sort of start. But I remember just having some really good people around me at the time, as stressful as it was, going, let's structure it this way, let's structure it that way. And actually opening myself up to an environment that I wasn't too sure about, I didn't know too much about. And finally, we came up with the concept, hopefully, even though it was rough around the edges, it actually did what it said it was going to do. And people learned to swim and people went on um, to teach people how to swim. And that's where the legacy comes from. And I think in whatever I do, and I'm sure whatever you do as well, you always got the back of your mind, you're thinking legacy. Am I right? Of course. It's all about legacy, legacy, legacy. I think that's what I've spoken most about in many of the, the final thoughts, which I do at the end of the podcast. And that is about, it's awesome that we are all doing these wonderful things for ourselves. Well, not for ourselves, but you know, we're taking care of ourselves, but what are we all doing to help the next generation? What are we all doing to make sure that the people that come after us or are even here at the moment, what are we doing to help them? Because as you've said, none of us have got here by themselves, by ourselves. So whether it's asking for help or people coming to our aid, like we haven't got here alone. Um, so how does helping people make you feel, Andy? Hey, I'm sorry. Um, you know what? It's, it's something that I was very conscious of um, being a TV presenter. I just think in general, being a performer, it's all about you. And that's the focus because those people that are successful, those people that do great stuff, um, you have to prioritize on yourself. And I think something that I was very aware of um, quite early on in my career um, was that actually I have the ability to share what I've learned. And especially mm -hmm. for a community, my community, so I'm Nigerian born, black guy, moved to Birmingham when I was eight. My parents now live in America. We've lived around the world. I like lived in France a little bit and stuff like that. I realized I had a particular view on the world that I'd love to share, but also change the, um, the ideology of what it meant to be black in, in Britain. Mm -hmm. And actually, when I was offered the Blue Peter job years ago, I actually turned it down because I didn't quite know whether or not it was something I wanted to do, to be honest. Um, I never really watched it as a kid. I was more of a like a, I don't know if many people might know still, because I'm a bit of an old G, but like, you know, Biker Grove, Brain Chill, that was my Of course end. I remember Biker Grove yeah, and Brain Chill. I know your audience, Corey. They vary <laughs> from like 18 to like whatever. It's you've got a broad audience, bro. <laughs> like, yes. So for those that might not know. <laughs> for those of you that do not know, use a search engine, use yes, a search engine of your choosing and search for, for Biker Grove or Grange Hill. I mean, you know, it, it, and I I'd actually had to think about the responsibility of doing such a job because yeah. what I quickly realized was that there was no, there was never a, um, a black man that had hosted the program. Diane Lewis Jordan um, had done for a few years before me. She was the ever first black female. And in something like 50 or 60 years of the program's existence, there'd only been really three ethnic minorities that had been Blue Peter presenters. It was me, Diane Lewis Jordan, and Connie Huck. And, you know, for me, it was about helping people realize that they don't have to be what society tells them to be or how people um, stereotypically are painted, whether in the mass media or whatnot. And I really saw the opportunity, as much as it was about me and my self-progression, to really change the narrative. You know, I've always had it in my head that, you know, James Bond, man, whatever happened if he was black? Well, he'd be a blue people. Sorry, uh, where, where do you think that 
comes from as in so you've said quite a few times you had it in the back of your head you had it in the back of your head where where do you think that comes from as in like not everybody is like that i'm not and i'm not saying that everyone should be like that i'm just interested in like where does that bit of you come from as in is it learned is it taught uh, were you born with it yeah, it, it, it's really tricky. Ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to do something mad. Like, <laughs> I don't know what it was, right? I've always wanted to, I always knew that Birmingham wasn't enough for me. I always knew that I wanted to see the world. I always knew I wanted to taste things, um, touch things. Like, I'm from a family of five kids and my older brother's super safe. Um, mm. I'm the way I am. My, the one after me, actually, he's a bit of an adventure. He travels well as a cruise ship director. My little mm. sister's more homely. Um, she travels a little bit, but more kind of, you know, nice holidays, beach vibes, hotels. <laughs> um, and then uh, the, 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 the last one, he's like a mad academic. He's at NYU, New York State um, University, doing like clinical psychology. So mm. he's more homely, but he's always thinking. And I think those seeds have been dropped the one thing all our siblings have together is mm. that we want we've always wanted to bring change in some way shape or form so our grandfather um a guy called balaji idobu he's uh he, god rest his soul he's not with us anymore but my, my granddad basically was the leader of the methodist church in nigeria and not many people know this but like my granddad basically uh used to meet like the pope in the vatican a fair bit and stuff like that and my granddad so, was also like uh, a theologist so He'd always question the validity of um, the Yoruba religion, which is ours, my 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 culture and my tribe in Nigeria, um, versus and the indigenous religions of Nigeria and many African countries versus the colonial ideology of Christianity, and that was something he was really strong on is how we find ourselves as Nigerians away from um, the white dominant forces that had basically lived and conquered those countries for, for so many years. And so my granddad wrote a book called Oludumare, which means uh, God in, in Yoruba. And that's primarily what that book is talking about, is how do we, who are we um, away from, you know, modern day Christianity? Have we forgotten the demigods and you know the orishas of our culture and are, are, why aren't they as valid as a jesus or whatnot um in, in terms of our religion we talk about post-colonial mentality and all that kind of stuff but also i listen to like musicians like fella kuti and a lot of the musicians i listen to are like jazz musicians and hip-hop artists like Mos Def, Talib Kweli, who are always talking about either pan-africanism or trying to do something different and each one of these people were not or are not the stereotype the western world portrays as many black people these people yeah. are huge academics huge groundbreakers you know these people are forward-thinking people to some extent in their way and they stepped away from the norm you know the likes of the roots um as a, one of my favorite hip-hop bands they're a band that played hip-hop you know full band yeah. And they didn't do that well in America, but they permeated across Europe because they dared to do something different from, you know, what hip hop was supposed to be. And I love people like that. I've always been attracted to trailblazers and groundbreakers, people that just look slightly out of the box, regardless of color, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, and actually are, are, are willing to sacrifice themselves in a way to try and change the narrative. And I think I've always been that way. I've always written, I've always had friends that question things, and I've always surrounded myself with those kind of people in general, naturally just gravitate towards them in general. And, um, and I always see like what I do as a, as a career as 
you know, a, a way of just breaking the stereotype. Like, you know, I've got a skydiving license. I've got a racing license. <laughs> I've got a, a world record for swimming. I'm saying this now and it's baffling because when I was doing it, I didn't even think like how- Exactly. Do you know what I mean? I was just doing it because I thought this is great. And actually, let's flip the narrative. Why not? And this is what I constantly try and explain to people that half of the things that we do, we haven't done them for like the wow factor or so we can tell a story. We've done it because we're genuinely interested in it and we work out the other part after the fact. You'll be like, oh, wow, this is, oh, okay. So this is a, this is a big thing. And, I, and even me, if someone that uh, talks about flipping the narrative, when you were like, yeah, bro, I used to go snowboarding. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, you know, like, I mean, that's something I've always wanted to do for years. But like, you know, like, it, it sounds odd. Even, it's not odd, but it's just human nature to a certain degree. But even I sometimes, regardless of the things that I've done, still allow, um, I call it the evils, but like, I always allow myself sometimes to just forget that I can just do things because I go, yeah. well, you know, oh, I don't know if I could do that. I don't see many brothers doing that. I don't see many black people doing that and stuff like that. And actually I've realized where a lot of that came from as well. Um, despite my mom's father being this like grand guy or whatever, my mm. parents sometimes drop that in my head. Like my mom would mm. always be like, oh, come on, we don't do that. You know, black people don't do that, all that kind of stuff. And I naturally, I'm a rebel anyway. So I'm just like, you tell me I can't do it. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and, and, and I hate that because for me, when I do have children and things like that, that's not what I want to give them. I yeah. Regardless of the obstacles there are in the world, because we know they definitely are. Um, but you know what? Just do it. Do you fancy doing it? Let's give it a go. Let's go for it. Why not? So then what is it like being one of the only black people in, in many of the spaces that mm. you gravitate to? Like, mm. is there a lot of pressure? Like how, how, how is it? That's a good question. Um, I still think about it a lot and sometimes it still gets me down, um, but it's also inevitable. I mm -hmm. think when you're successful as a black person, you see less black people around you constantly. And yeah. sometimes you just need that black nod in the office to know if things are okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, uh, I, I was like, I had some friends down on the weekend because I'm down in, I've got a place in Margate. I was down here, I'm down here with some friends. And they're like, do you know that guy? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> You know, what are you doing by the seaside, bro? Yeah, me too. Respect. We might have a little chat or just a gentle nod. It's assurance to know we exist and we're good. And, you know, it, it, it was tough because on Blue Peter, regardless of being the first um, black male presenter on the program, was also, for a lot of it, the only black guy in the office. Yeah. And you slowly realise and ask yourself the question, have I been brought in because I'm a, a black guy that doesn't uh, feel threatening? Or am I a black guy that's <laughs> more acceptable? But these are real things that go through your head. And people don't realise this at all. I mean, we've seen a lot now because of what's happened over the last few months with the protests and demonstrations and whatnot. And much is now coming into public consciousness. But, you know, this has been my parents' lives. These have been my, this has been my life. And you just hold your head above the water, excuse the pun, because we're in a bath, but you, just, <laughs> you, know, you do hold yourself a head above water because you can't let the evils get to you. But I think more recently, as I've started doing more prestigious stuff, like maybe in sport and things like that, which are very predominantly white and very predominantly white 
and middle class, mm-hmm. you do realize that actually there are so many discussions around race we are still yet to have in this country about how people interact, how people live, and all that kind of stuff. Um, my, one of my favorite writers is a guy called James Baldwin, and um, in, in one of his speeches, he was saying, you know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's great, I'm paraphrasing now because I'm really bad at remembering lines exactly, but mm-hmm. he was basically saying, you know, like, I grew up in a school with white kids, um, from the school doors, it was segregated, to the point where, you know, obviously we played in the playground, we did whatever we did, but like, no one really knows what I ate, no one really knows what dinner looked like in my house, no one really knows like, what my life was like in the household, blah, blah, blah. And for me, as specifically an ethnic minority that came to Britain, you know, there's a duality to me. You know, I have, um, I was born uh, speaking both Yoruba and English, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like that was my mother tongue. But I also speak English really well, because, you know, in Nigeria, um, because my parents are relatively middle class in Nigeria, my, mom, my dad was training as a pediatrician and my mom's a nurse. Like mm-hmm. we went to a private primary school because unless you paid fees for your school, the schooling was never going to be that good. So, you know, my, all my parents' money went towards our education. And then we come to England and um, we didn't have the same sort of, my parents didn't have the same sort of opportunities. So you go from a relatively middle class Nigerian environment to mm-hmm. a very working class British environment. And also within that working class British environment, you are still often the only black person in that space as well, because yeah. it was a particular parts of Birmingham. But you just get to, you just learn to get on with it. And I actually sometimes see it as a, as a, as a position of power, really, in terms mm-hmm. of how you bring change. But it doesn't make it any easier, especially, and mm-hmm. where it really stares you in the face is when you're like in these really nice posh soirees or whatnot like you know you get invited to some amazing things and i have been lucky to over the last few years is that when you're being served by someone that's black you're just like oh man like i know it's my privilege as a as the oh, one of the few black guys that's made it through and actually i'm like why is it still the same here whereby a lot of the staff in here are brown but yet a lot of the people being served are still white like it still baffles me till today. And sometimes I feel a little ashamed because I feel like, man, like what are they thinking of me? Like, you know, I don't know, it still crosses my mind sometimes, but I also can't help the journey I've been on. And for me, anything I do or anything I want to do is always trying to, to, to bring change or try and change the narrative a little bit. But as I've got older, like in the younger days, I hid a lot, if I'm honest with you, I hid because I was afraid to speak my truth. Yeah. As I've become an adult and over the last year, two, three years, and becoming more confident in my performance, becoming more confident in what I have to offer and having a much more of a truth to myself, I'm able to, sound sounds odd, you know, metaphorically stick the middle finger up and just go, if you don't want to work the way I work, then don't bring me into your company because you brought me in for a particular reason. I don't want to come here and be told that I can't say this or I can't do this um, because that's what makes me authentic. That's what makes me who I am. That's what makes me, uh, that's my USP actually. It's what makes me different to other presenters. And I think what was really tough about being on something like Blue Peter is that it's actually such uh, a white middle-class program in terms of it actually represents a lot of old school British ideology in terms of colonialism to to a degree and imperialism to a certain degree. And it was really hard to deal with because I think sometimes I was expected to be, uh, to not be a colour and just be a presenter, um, which for me is annoying because actually for us to really understand the truths and the nuances surrounding our countries and who we are as people, 
We need to see colour and we need to allow people to be themselves. But together, we are still British. And it's no, something I've said, you know, some, I'll just finish on this. But something I've always said is that, you know, the, the big question I ask people sometimes is that when you see the Union Jack, you know, that flag that weighs to, for Great Britain, what else do you see? Do you see people like yourselves, predominantly white? Or do you see the multifacetedness of Britishness, whether it be um, people of South Asian origin, people of West African origin, East African origin, you know, South American, like, do you know what I mean? Like, do we see the real tapestry of our country or are we still holding on to the ideals of what the empire represented, what colonialism represented for so long? Um, I think that's a very interesting question and one that I've genuinely never, ever thought about as it is really interesting what, people think of when they think of the Union Jack. I don't know many of, I guess, my people that see the flag and as you say, think, ah, oh, yes, that's my flag. Yeah, true, it's true. And that's that's got a lot to do with nationalism though, which I think is also quite dangerous in that, like, what does it mean to be nat nationalistic? Because identity is actually quite nuanced. Like me being black, a Nigerian but from Birmingham can you call that the typified British no or typified English no someone from Manchester who grew up in a small town um, or someone from Lancashire who grew up in a small town in Lancashire and you know grew up predominantly in a white area um, you know working class or whatever can you say that's a story of a predominantly British person because someone from London will have a very different idea so this notion of like having to band around this weird common ground is that actually, should we not just accept that we're all different anyway, but together within that difference, what's wonderful about it is that we are together against British, but we could also be anything like, you know, we could be, and you know, countries themselves are a construct. Like, you know, if we look at the African continent, those countries were a construct. People roamed across lands, traded with, without the division of countries, without yeah. the division of borders. So actually this notion of nationalism for me, harks back to a nostalgia that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, is that we don't know how to deal with modernity. So we've got to go back to the old days, you know, when it was like, um, uh, what is that? <laughs> like, because none of us identify with it anymore, you know? And I think because that's I'm where... sure, I'm sure, I'm sure there'd be so many different answers if you were to ask anybody, like, what does it mean to be British? That's like, what does what does that question even mean? Like the question alone probably means something completely different to everybody, let alone the answer. And yeah. that might be something else for us to explore. No, that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. I know, but like, you know, we we love, we love to gas a little bit about <laughs> I love it. Um, so have you seen things change in your industry or anywhere else um since George Floyd and the protests? Yeah, I think, yeah, I have. I'm sorry, I sound like really exhausted because like, <laughs> it's because I, have to think, I have to think about this carefully because there's, there's, there's short-term change and there's long-term yeah. change. I think a lot, there were a lot of knee-jerk reactions and sometimes I even respected some of the companies that didn't say anything and just waited to suss it out and figure out mm. what they needed to do um, instead of just putting the day after um, the yeah, the, the lip service, which we've, we've seen a lot of. Um, I've seen little bits, but, you know, in football, I am still the only forward-facing black, like, dark-skinned black presenter um, for football. <laughs> like, that's mad. That is actually mad. 
Um, I think Jermaine Jenis is now coming through with the BBC and does some stuff for the BT as well. And um, I think Spoonie might do some stuff or Jonathan might do some stuff, but maybe that's still like maybe three people forward facing properly like broadcasters for a sport that's a huge portion of people that play it are black. Um, and it, it, it's, it's hard, um, but slowly um, I'm seeing, you know, black editors, um, black people working in graphics and things like that. But I still think it's going to take a while for the change to come on the higher levels. There's a woman called Ade Ratcliffe, um, who's sort of big in the diversity game for ITV, who's now on the board, which is fantastic, a fantastic move. Um, I just hope there's some sustainability to it. Um, I mean, I've seen change, you know, rash changes very quickly, um, but it's the sustainability of it. And actually, something, one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is that, you know, me and um, two friends have basically set up a, a consultancy to try and work with companies in trying to bring that change um, and make it more sustainable and make it more um, authentic as opposed to what has been before. Because what we've seen previously is a lot of lip service, a lot of quick reaction, and there's no sustainability and there's no culpability for it. Um, for the future and that's why we're still here talking and banging our heads against the wall saying people need to be represented people's voices need to be heard um unconscious bias um exists um or you know all, all, all of the above and all the stuff that we've been speaking about over the last um couple of months and actually centuries actually um so you know it, th th there's been slow change there's been a little bits of change but what i'm looking for is the sustainability of change where we are actually seeing the major movers and shakers on top of production companies on top of um you know the heads of the bbc for instance or the heads of itv are right 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 at the top um banks you know huge corporations like that where it matters those decision making positions that's where the real change comes because it's easier to pepper it on the surface level but when you're up top that's where it becomes tricky because you're talking big money there and you're talking about giving people you're not quite sure if you haven't had much experience of huge responsibilities with big money attached and that when that starts happening properly in a systemic way then i'll feel more confident i think and how do you think that needs to happen? Mm, mm. <laughs> no, I mean, this is not something that happens overnight as well. And I think it's, it's, it's so important to remember this. So we're working like there's um, I'm working with this thing called cultural intelligence. And it's still, it's something that was developed in America called by a guy called Dr. David Livermore. And it, it actually is about, for us anyway, when we're talking to companies, it's about, deconstructing to reconstruct, deconstructing those unconscious biases that you didn't think you had and to reconstruct a reality that's way more sustainable. Um, and that's a slow process because a lot of people are still in denial. You know, I was, you know, I had casual relations with a, a female woman person <laughs> and she said to me, and she was white and she said, um, oh, this racism stuff doesn't exist. 2020, mate, you know, I know it's a thing, but come on, it's not that. And I had wow. it's the very first time in my life I've had to kick someone out of my home and say, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like Jazzy Jeff Fresh Pin style and later's bro. Like, you know, it's it was like I was so shocked because I guess 
this is where we're all living in our own little bubbles. In my mind, I thought everyone, it felt like you. a lot of people were on board with what was being said. There were a lot of black squares on Instagrams, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, finally, like people are listening. But the reality is some people don't want to listen. And we got to a point where I also am not militant in that sense. I was annoyed at the time and we, we ended up coming back together and having a chat. And she was in tears because, she, because I said to her, I was like, you knew what you said was wrong you just denied it because you couldn't be bothered to do the work. And she was, she, she said, you know, and funny enough, straight day after she went and bought Renault Edologies, this is why I don't talk to white people about race. And she apologized. Oh, I've been in the bubble. I was like, you always knew it's not, you didn't need that book to tell you. Yeah. And that's the issue is that I think a lot of people know, but they la di da la di da la di da I don't see color as much more of an easier thing to, 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 to say. So for me, it's about, deconstructed to reconstruct and for me people have to go there it's like we talk about seeking help right in this it's like you know i've i've had therapy for years because for me my industry i find a bit of a mind fuck like some days they want you some days they don't there's always someone coming through or someone's got a better agent than you who's got better links to them and they can get the better jobs even though you're already talented and that sense of uncertainty is so unnerving and you know when i got the Blue Peter job, four or five years into it, I was just like, look, this is weird, man. Like, this is giving me serious anxiety. So I sought help. I had to mm -hmm. deconstruct myself to rebuild my confidence, to rebuild myself moving forward. And that's how I see dealing with what we're talking about now in terms of racism, unconscious bias, and equalities, that you have to deconstruct and look deeper into what you thought was your reality. And actually, to recreate a new reality, you need to learn that, that past reality was privileging one particular group of people, most likely your parents who have been able to afford certain things, most likely you who've been, who have been able to permeate through different positions in society with much more ease. I'm not saying there aren't issues still with class in this country, but even within class, people still permeate with much more ease if they're white. And I think it's mm -hmm. important to understand that. And it's still important to understand there are still issues we need to deal with, but this is also a massive issue. You know, if you do have black friends, then why don't you know, know more about their lives? It's not just about going out and getting pissed and thinking we're all one. It's about, you know what, what you know what do your family do like you know and i'm not being afraid to talk about color there's still a lot of people that can't talk and say the word black that black guy that black girl because they think they might be saying something wrong yeah. and that shows me that people still aren't comfortable with talking about race black people are like white people this blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's just the way it is because you say what you see right um and not in an offensive way but in a kind of like yeah, they're white and I'm black. I mean, that's nothing wrong with that. Of course, there's some similarities there, but fundamentally, we've got two different cultures and sometimes we look at things very, very differently. Of course, we're human beings. Of course, we want what's best for our family. Of course, we want to put bread on the table. Those are huge commonalities that human beings share across the world. But within that, there are nuances between the way we both navigate the world, especially in Western civilization. And so that, I think, you know, that's what I think it is. It's really about deconstructing oneself to reconstruct a new reality and a much more healthy reality because actually once you once you see that and you it's, it's like that moment you know like you know I've, I've been depressed sometimes and it's that moment where you snap out of depression you're like oh look at the sky isn't that nice <laughs> look at that tree isn't that green you just start seeing the way people move around the world people move around you and once you have that knowledge then you can start to think how do I move through this world as well in a healthy, more inclusive way?
Now, do you think the the kind of open discussions that we have been having recently around race, around equality, do you think that those conversations would have been, I'm not saying they have been easy, but do you think they would have been as easy to have had COVID not happened, had we not been having a lot of these conversations over Zoom, over phone, over text messages? Yeah. Do you think we would have come as far as we have come if this all happened when we were all out in the open, all at our jobs, all at our pubs? No, because I mean, those, those are never to be other distractions, aren't they? I'm too busy to do that. You know, it's the same, same way I feel people deal with mental health. You're like, oh yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But you don't do it. Everything else takes precedence going out socializing drinking you know working hard you know avoiding everything but the thing you really need to be doing if you do have if you are struggling uh, mentally um and you know the i think i'm not the first in saying this the the beauty within covid in fact if you can say that slightly paradoxical but it, you know is what it is is that like you know people are forced to see in front of their screen because there's nothing else to do <laughs> there was nothing else to do <laughs> literally couldn't go anywhere without seeing the george floyd thing even people that wanted to avoid watching the actual thing his face is in people's minds and imprinted yeah. in people's minds forever and you know every single news out that was talking about the the protests and the demonstrations you know like um every single outlet was that for literally a week or two you couldn't turn on the TV without seeing mass gatherings, whether it be in Paris, whether it be in London, the United States, and you know, cities around the United States, you know, some countries in Africa, even some places in India, you know, like you couldn't, Australia, the Aborigines as well, like, you know, South America, you couldn't turn on your TVs without seeing it. And I think because there was nothing else on. Like, <laughs> yeah. People have been watch, forced to act. You've been forced to watch it. My worry is, it's like anything else, you galvanize people for two or three weeks and then it becomes chip paper and everyone moves on when things hit a certain normality. And I think that's why it's really important when hopefully news organizations and more media organizations are employing people of color, um, that these stories aren't forgotten and we keep stoking the fire every year till we really get that equality, but also that people are given the space to tell these stories authentically so it gets and makes the impacts that we really want them to make. But I definitely do think you're right, like, COVID didn't make people sit still, which is great, but I'm just wondering whether or not, like my 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 friend um, mm. who said, oh, it's 2020, I can't believe it still exists type thing. Um, it still sticks with people moving forward and those distractions don't, um, don't, don't stop. I actually have more faith in the younger generation because they're coming mm. at it um, with a different um, ideology. You know, to, for me, from what I'm watching, you know, with those younger than me, it's like actually your difference is your trading card. Um, whereas for our generation, it was kind of about assimilating as much as possible, and our parents' generation is about assimilating. Yeah. For the younger generation, you know, people are born into a time where job there's no job certainty, so people have to create platforms for themselves, all that kind of thing, and people are having to be entrepreneurs in their own right. Um, and actually, how do you differentiate yourself from the crowd? Actually, if you think about it on a commercial level, you talk about who you are as an individual. You know, um, whether it be um gender whether it be color whether it be whatever you know it is it is what it is you know um and actually that's what's differentiating so is that your whatsapp this is the problem having everything linked up to your computer <laughs> <laughs> 
that I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I usually turn off everything. But that's the, that's the reality, you know, is that actually your trading card now is how different you are to everyone else. And, but also everyone applauds that because for a particular generation, it's about being as authentic as possible. Otherwise, you're a fraud and people don't buy into you. And I think that's what's definitely, definitely changed. And I think that is exactly what has happened especially when discussing things like mental health because the kind of conversations that we have nowadays we would never have had 10 15 20 years ago so openly yeah. as in earlier on you spoke about uh therapy yeah. i don't know about you but as i just said 10 or 15 years ago i i, I don't think i would have ever broached the subject of therapy i don't think i knew anyone who knew anything about it? All I knew about therapy, I think, was Fraser. Mm, mm, Dr. Fraser Crane. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Fraser McCrane. Um, it's true. Like, I I don't know, man. I don't know. And, and I've got back to your original question, like what made me be this person. Mm. I've always, and I'm, I'm very different to everyone in my family, which is weird, is that when I'm not feeling good, I want to know why not. And... Yeah. After I left Blue Peter, I had a massive identity crisis. Mm. Huge. Because you've been this person for so long, happier than now, bumbling, fun, all those kind of things, you know, like you've been that person for so long and you know, you, you're constantly fighting these battles between the programs to try and be authentic, but yet the program's so heavily formatted that you have to assimilate to this sort of Blue Peter archetypal character. And mm. I struggled a lot, you know, because also, I didn't see my family much while I was on that program. I remember when I first started that program on my first year, um, I basically, um, I calculated that I was in my flat and, and a total number of days that amounted to something like two or three months. And also my oh, family wow. in America. So, you know, it was hard to find that grounding and balance and that happened for many, many years. So when I came off that program, it was like, my mind and my body was going at hundred miles an hour, but the world outside was just like, kind of place of uncertainty. I was out of my bubble. And you know, mm. I slipped deeply into sort of depression because also um, a lot of people want to see you as a Blue Peter presenter where you're like, I can do more, you know, I can so you're it's like being a child star, you're typecasted as that, you know. So you're you're breaking through that and also being a person of colour and a black guy, you know, there still weren't many jobs out there. It was basically me, Reggie Yates, Melvin O'Doom, um, um, Otis and I think Ori Aduba, but Ori was just coming up at the time. So there's like four black guys in the whole scene that were actually doing some stuff that was like nationally recognizable. And you know, you're, you're battling against every other black guy because once they found their one, that's the one. So I <laughs> saw therapy very, very quickly because I just, I'd never felt that low before. I never felt that different. And I was always like, you know what, while I've got the time, you know, and work's not going that well, I might as well put my money into something, trying to understand my mind. But then also therapy is a fascinating one because it's also important to meet someone and talk to someone that understands your journey. You know, I remember my first therapist was a, um, which is quite interesting. Um, he was an Iraqi Jewish guy um, who I was like, brilliant, we can have the ethnic talk. But this guy was telling me that racism didn't exist in Britain. And like, you know, <laughs> and I was just like, I might be mind fucked here. Like, because I'm telling yeah. you, it's really personal to me, but you start getting it. And I thought, oh, wow. But then you understand, uh, you know, as, as you go through your journey, that everyone's different. And actually, you need to find some, someone that suits your personality, and someone that suits you better, and, you know, all that kind of jazz. But for me, 
therapy it has been one of the greatest godsends because for me what my mindset's always being is that if i want to be a better parent i need to understand myself better i want to learn from a lot of the mistakes that my parents have made because it's not easy being a parent no there's no real manual that can teach you how to be a parent and deal with the diversity of children that there is in this world but once you haven't dealt with yourself mm -hmm. then you're gonna find it tricky to deal with someone else. And it's the same as in relationships. I was making various mistakes in relationships based on traumas and, and things that I hadn't dealt with. And I realized that actually for me to be a better boyfriend, for me to be a better person um, mm -hmm. with my partner, that I needed to, to seek help. Because one thing about performers is that sometimes you, um, you trade your, um, your well-being and your self-worth in your industry with your self-worth outside your industry. So what I mean by that is that you end up a lot of the time and it takes a lot of learning, you know, you getting that big job is basically gives you that freaking boost to where you're like, yes, bro, you know, it's like, but that's <laughs> because that job ends and we all do short contracts after two, three months or whatever. And then you're back, you know, hustling it, trying to, you know, talk to people for your next job or something might come your way two months later and in between you're going, what do I do for money, blah, blah, blah. And that constant, you know, sense of validation through work is hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard. So you have to find that equilibrium where you're finding pleasure in other things that aren't your work. Because, yeah. But unfortunately, because of what you do and you're forward facing, you meet someone on the street and they're like, what you do now? And you're like, oh. <laughs> No one wants to say they're in between jobs because everyone's like, oh, you washed up, you some washed up presenter, you some washed up actor. You but why? Because that's the pressure the media put on the idea of celebrity. Is the fact that we are, but, but the thing is the notion of celebrity is based on zero realism. It's a construct. It's a construct. The fact that you're probably schmoozing with all the cool, interesting people. People forget everyone's an individual. It's the same way as footballers. You know, a footballer has a bad game and people are like, oh, it's the worst footballer ever. We just paid 80 million for him. And I'm like, bro, he can have, have a one bad day. Bad day. <laughs> oh, get rid of him. Fans are like, get rid of him. Oh, it's not what we wanted, mate. It's not what we asked for. You know, we wanted a guy that could hit the ground running. And people are forgetting some of these kids are coming in at the age of 19, 20, 21 from different countries where they don't speak the language of this country, being shoved in front of 45, 50,000 fans who are booing, hissing, sometimes racially abusive, and you want them to get on with it and just not have any problems. That's hard work. And that's gonna take a certain mental strength and mental capacity in order to be successful in that industry. And also, if you're injured, you're not playing for so long, you know, you're off the scene. Are you relevant as a person if you're not kicking the football? You know, and all of these are all the things I say about people like people like us who are performers. Because um, I guess a footballer, you are performing for an audience to a certain degree. But like that's the way I see it. And and for me, in order to find some sort of normality between this and try and find healthy relationships with people, girlfriends, boyfriends, whoever you you know, whatever your preference might be, like you need to do the work because it just it just just doesn't come to you it's impossible i don't know anybody that it just comes to who's wiser than now because you know there's some evil spirits out there and i'm using it <laughs> in our industry and you've got to ward off them evil spirits man i've got to get the holy water every morning i'll pour it on my head <laughs> trust me man there's some there's some disturbed situations in in the media industry and in the entertainment industry and you just got to keep yet again keep your head above water Amazing. I am. Thank you very much. <laughs>
What a, another beautiful episode. Ah, do you have um, a question for me? I always ask my guests. You have one question. Yeah, I, my thing for you, and, and it's something, and I've been so lucky to watch you grow um, over the years, is that I know, weirdly, the, the, the two, there were two beefies. The, the one I know now, <laughs> I always, I'd seen in pictures, I still, it still baffles me as to when that point of realization came for you that the beefy that was ragging, you know, super bikes and, you know, not having the most healthy diet became this, what I'd class as a highly motivational sports coach, guru, whatever. When did that point of enlightenment drop on you? When, when was that Eureka moment for you? Um, I think the, I don't think there was like one moment like it was more a case of loads and loads of moments building up and building up, building up. It was literally the the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. And like the first time was when a friend of mine went to go and watch the London Marathon. Sorry, went to run the London Marathon. I went to watch it. I was inspired. I started running, but I had no idea like where this running thing would take me. So... I kind of ran the London Marathon. It wasn't a great experience, but there was like there was like a tiny, tiny little spark in me that like woke something up because even though that was a terrible, terrible, terrible race, like I learned so much about myself. Like I cried, um, like the first time I ran the half marathon, I, I cried for most of, I guess the last two or three miles because I was still dealing with like the the death of my grand that I didn't even know I hadn't dealt with. Uh, but like throughout the running, I just kept having these like flashbacks. Like she would talk to me, she would say weird stuff to me, um, or I would just have her in my head. And I was like, this is, this is weird. Normally I have not complete control over my head, but it's kind of like when you have something in your head, if you don't want it in there, you just kind of push it out to the side. But this was one thing that I couldn't really get rid of. And it was the running that, that helped me, I guess, find, find some solace, find some, some peace. Mm-hmm. And then slowly but surely, like running became more and more and more um, like a part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got injured. Um, I was unable to go to work. And I sat there after my knee surgery for months And I think at that point, I realized that I couldn't do, I couldn't, I couldn't put up with stuff anymore. Yeah. Like I couldn't just do stuff for, for the, not even for the sake of it. It's more like I was sat here, I couldn't move. I had this like um, weird boot around my leg that used to pump like cold water to, to, to help the swelling go down. Like I was pissed. So I was just sat there, like Jules like had to like, obviously like grab food for me. Um, she had to, to help me get dressed. Um, and it wasn't a huge deal as in like, I, like I didn't, I, I hadn't been, I hadn't had my leg cut it. I, all I had was knee surgery, but it meant that I had to be still. And I hadn't been still in so long so my brain just worked overtime it it was just like tick 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 it was it was just running code (laughs) in the background and i'd just wake up 
and I'd be like, oh, okay, I've got to work. Um, and I remember going to, to see like the doctor and it was like, oh, okay, you're kind of where you should be, but in a couple of months, like keep up whatever it is that you're doing. And I was just so motivated to get, to get back to, to, to whatever it was that I wanted to get back to. Mm. Dude, when I went back to work, I, I went into the office, I sat down, I was there for a couple of hours and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Really? Yeah, I was like, I can't do this. I cannot do this anymore. I don't know why. Wow. Hello? Yeah, yeah, I was saying, I don't know why, but I, like, I, I, can't, I can't do it anymore. And I wrote my resignation letter. I sealed it and I said to the gaffer, I was like, uh, could I have a word, please? Mm. Um, wrote the note, um, handed over the notice. I was like, I, I, I can't, like, I can't work here anymore. Wow. Like, wow. I love, I've loved working here. It's been, like, it wasn't a short journey. Like, that was... I was there for 10 years, like maybe a little scared, bit more. Were you still scared? It, it, oh, it yeah. For a lot of people. Dude, I was so scary. To make even come out of your mouth. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I was, I was doing, I was doing myself. This sounds terrible. So my previous employer, you know, who you are, you have done amazing things for me but it's just like college or school or university you're there for five years you finish then you move on to a levels after you've done your a levels you go to university so that was whatever stage of my life it was um and i just felt that i needed to go to a new school and that's kind of what i did like but i knew that being there i'm like i was i was stopping myself mm. from but i didn't know what Mm -hmm. and that was like that was the weird bit because you kind of you jump but you've got no idea what you're you're jumping into yeah for sure for sure for sure for sure it's true but it's still inspiring though and i hate using that word because i still think i don't know like inspiring it sounds corny doesn't it but it is like, <laughs> not, not many people have the strength or even when they've reached boiling point still stick with it you know to, to to you know not many people have that and i wonder if people are intrinsically anomalies in, in that or <laughs> whether everyone can actually have it because i do believe everyone can have it but not everyone does it like i do believe we can all change but that's maybe because that's kind of in my psyche a little bit to just you know be a bit of a disruptor but what i'm learning as i'm getting older is that actually sometimes it's good to have familiarity as well you know like to have continuation is is, is key other than wanting to bring change or change everything all the time like you know i've got a rule that most jobs i stay on except about five years because i tried to learn in that time and that's when i was much younger now i'm a bit older you know maybe more than that because you know, for me to be the professional I want to be, I actually want to get to know the industry or the, the company I'm working for in and out properly before I can feel like I'm completely totally useful within it. But in the past, like when I was much younger, I'd basically do five years in my jobs and then move on to the next one if I could. Um, but, you know, that's scary for a lot of people. Yep. It's really, really hard. But also one more thing before we go. <laughs> no, please. 
is that, you know, I know you've been with um, your partner for a while, Jules. Um, mm. Has that helped you to, to find oh, some... Oh, dude, so steadiness, much. You know, in terms of just having stability in that sense. Like, so many people don't understand how much Jules, my girlfriend, my missus, like, mm. does for me. You need, like, you need someone to keep you grounded. You need someone to, like, not slap you literally, <laughs> but to slap you and be like, listen... Who cares? <laughs> like, so what? <laughs> so what? You're in a newspaper today. Cool. What are we having for dinner? <laughs> like, you need, like, dude, you need, you need that. Like, you need someone who is, is with you. You need someone who's on your page. You need someone who is in it with you in the fight for no other reason than they love you. Like, you need someone who, like, you grow together, like, you build something together. You need someone who, like, understands you. Like, the weird, like, wonderful ideas that I've had, all of the, the concepts, all of the things that either I've brought to life or me and her have brought to life or me and the team have brought to life, they've all gone through her. And when I say that... Not I've asked for sign off or I've or or, or or anything like that. More a case of the simple conversations that you have in bed, you have over breakfast, you have over dinner. Oh, what do you think of this? Oh, what do you think of that? Oh, I'm practicing my lines. Oh, I'm going here. Or a simple, I've had a terrible day. I need a hug. Or just I need someone to be to be silent. Mm. And like all of these things that so many people like don't think about, like because she's not the hype one <laughs> who's jumping around like on stage, she is just as important. Like that ridiculous photograph <laughs> that was in the Evening Standard yesterday, she took that. We were in the bathroom for about an hour. Like her face was push up and she was pissed <laughs> that we were in there for so long. But gotta get it right though, yeah. Gotta get it right. Ex yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's amazing. No, it's really nice. It's really nice. I've known her for a while now, so it's just nice to put some context to how that dynamic works as well. And um, it's definitely something that you know I talk about a lot with with friends. Is, is finding someone who's got your corner and um, how important that can be, um, and not necessarily someone who's totally out there in the same way you might be. Actually, those mm -hmm. contrasts are probably sometimes very very good for the balance of the relationship and complementing it as well so yeah it's good to hear man thank you dude and nice. just one thing to add i also know how much she has given up to be the person that she is being for me yeah for sure man for sure with that shadow of that with that shadow of it <laughs> um so sir thank you very much um for, for joining me yeah water's getting all cold now bro <laughs> <laughs> I've got radars, man. I've got bad circulation. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Dude, thank you very much. And everyone, thank you for tuning in. I will see you in Final Thoughts. So here we are. Welcome to Final Thoughts. If this is the first time you're listening to Final Thoughts, welcome, welcome.
welcome. Welcome to the first final thoughts in season two of The Top Hub. Now the podcast that you just listened to. I spent quite some time editing it. And I don't mean chopping bits out. I mean listening to it over and over and over again. And every single time I think I picked up something a little bit different. But regardless of what it was that I picked up, it all sort of pointed back to the same place. And that place is one of of inspiration, one of motivation, one of we will overcome, one of regardless of of what life throws at us. We're going to take those lemons, we're going to make cake, we're going to make custard, we're going to take the skin, we're going to make jackets, shoes, grind up the rest of it and, I don't know, make something else. But we shouldn't have to. That's the point. The point is that we shouldn't have to. But the point is that through those hardships that we appear to have all experienced, we all have this drive to just succeed regardless of. So what I want to say to everybody, but especially my people them, keep grinding. Because we will overcome. Have a blessed week. And yes, it is the 1st of October. The beginning of... What the world refers to as Black History Month. But! Yes, it is Black History Month. But... We need more than a month in it.